Good morning. Good morning, good morning. How you doing this morning? Oh, good. How's the kids? How's the grandkids? How many have grandkids? Aren't they awesome? We knew how much fun they were. We'd had them first, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Well, good morning, Emmanuel. We are so happy. Kathy and I are absolutely delighted to be here with you for a number of reasons. We, of course, we always love to minister the word wherever we go, but to be here at uh, Spring Lake Park uh, campus is very exciting for us. And good morning to the Maple Grove campus that is also streaming. Come on, let's welcome them. We are so happy you are here with us today and that we are there with you. Pastors, uh, uh, Nate and Jody send their love to you today. I talked with Nate last night late. He was at Myers Thrifty Acres. I have no idea why was it Myers Thrifty Acres at 10 o'clock at night in Michigan, but that's where he was. And uh, he told me to be sure and send their love uh, to you today. Uh, Pastor Nate is preaching at Radiant Church in uh, Michigan, near the Kalamazoo area, where uh, Lee and Jane Cummings are. And you know what thrills me? He's over there preaching at Lee's church. Lee was saved under our ministry in Grand Rapids, and now he's pastoring a great church there in the Kalamazoo area. So Nate's over there. Lee is in Nebraska preaching. I'm here preaching, and... Kathy and I are also interim pastors at a church in Dothan, and we have Johnny Jernigan preaching over there. This is the day of musical pulpits, and we're just kind of switching around, and we're having a lot of fun doing it. It's great. How many know that there may be many messengers, but there's only one message, and there's only one focus? And uh, can I just boast in the Lord over you and your pastor for a minute? I think if Paul could boast in the Lord over Timothy and the churches of Asia, I think, I think it's appropriate for Kathy and me. By the way, my wife is sitting down here in the front row. Best thing ever happened to me in my life, sitting right there. But if Paul could boast in the Lord, I, I think it's appropriate for Kathy and me to boast in the Lord. I've always been pleased to see how God has developed in Nate's life and Jody's life and to see how they live, to see how they love God, to see how they love their kids and parent their, their uh, boys. And uh, I've always been pleased to see that. And I'm very much aware of the fact that this is, this is a legacy church. Emmanuel Christian Center is a legacy church and um, already had a great reputation under the leadership of Dwight and Mark Denyus, who pastored this church for many years. And and uh, left a great legacy. But I would just tell you, having worked with, you know, many, many churches around the country and overseas, that any church that is a legacy church that is like 50 years or more older, many times they go through, in fact, 90% of the time, they go through a declining cycle. Well, I am here to tell you, Pastor Nate is providing stellar, stellar leadership for this church and moving you to advancement for the kingdom of God and casting a shadow of influence over this city. Can I hear an amen that this church is making a difference? And I don't know if you even realize, do you realize 
what in three years, okay, just three years that uh, Pastor Nate and Jody have been here, the church has grown numerically and financially. You've launched the Maple Grove campus, and you have a vision for more. You've done a major capital campaign and managed to keep your senses when you had to trim the sails. How many know what I'm talking about? You've already broken ground for this expansion project. You've just produced your third live worship album, What We Hope For, and I'm going to tell you it is fantastic. I have it on my iPhone. How many have it on your phone already or somewhere? It is tremendous. You really ought to get it. It's, it's tremendous. And by the way, your worship team was just in Louisville where Kathy and I were at a national conference. Your worship team, they were the talk of the conference. They did phenomenal. Wow. So, folks, I mean, I could go on and on, but can we just give a shout of praise to God for what God has done in blessing this church with Pastors Nate and Jody and all he's going to do in the future? It's awesome. I'm so excited. Well, are you ready for the word? All right, turn with me to John's Revelation. It is the last book in your Bible. As I prayed about this message, God clearly spoke to my heart to turn your eyes, focus your attention on Jesus this morning in a unique and special way. See, I know you've been on a journey living in tents. You've been in a journey with the, uh, with the children of Israel and understanding what God was teaching them in their journey as they lived in tents. And they were to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles every year by setting up tents. And I've actually been in some of those celebrations. Just a couple of years ago, we celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with some Jewish people. And they had their tent up, and they invited us over, and it was very exciting. And I love the set that the team created. In fact, I was saying to, uh, I was saying to one of the staff, Hey, how about I just stay inside the tent, we close it up, and then when you announce me, I'll come out. <laughs> I could just imagine myself tripping and falling right on my face right here, making my great debut. <laughs> but how many understand that we are living in tents? How many understand you're just renting this body for a little while, right? Right? You're just renting it for a little while. And one of these days, at the end of time, when God begins to sum up all the prophetic utterances that in these lines of prophecy that gather together in the matrix of the Holy Spirit to birth the end times, how many know we need to get ready for the coming of the Lord? How many are ready for him to come right now? You're ready for him to come. Now, let me just say, when I said that, if there are any of you in this room who said to yourself, well, you know, I, I'm not quite ready. There's some things, you know, between me and Lord, we got to get this settled. Or maybe you're just saying, yeah, I really don't know. Not quite sure about that. You know, you can never be quite sure. Well, let me tell you, you can be sure. And the good news is, by the end of this service, you're going to know, I want you to know. And we're going to give you an opportunity to be able to say yes with absolute confidence. All right. So John had a revelation 
The last book of the Bible is called the Revelation of John. And think about this. Can you imagine what it would have been like for John to be translated into the very presence of God, literally out of his tent and spiritually in the presence of God? And it gives us, an, I, I want you to have an experience like John did this morning. I want you to have an experience of what it would be like if in an instant God translated you from this tent that confines us here into the very presence of the living God. Last year there was a lot of inf information and a lot of speculation about the end times and the Antichrist and 666 and the four horsemen of the apocalypse and, and who's going to be the Antichrist and his number and what does that mean? All kinds of things in the stars aligning certain ways and four blood moons and people started getting into the book of Revelation again. But I want to just say this to you. The book of Revelation is not primarily about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's not primarily about the Antichrist. It's not primarily about 666 or the mark of the beast. The book of the Revelation is about Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the focus of the book of Revelation. So would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning? The title of my message is a question. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Let's read again, uh, read together, beginning at verse 1 of Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book and look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And we're going to skip all of this fascinating imagery in verses 6 through 10 simply because we just don't have the time to deal with it. Uh, but it has to do with the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful nature of God. But I want to focus your attention on Jesus again in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the powerful name of Jesus. Spirit of the Lord, would you make Jesus so real to us today? Give us a glimpse of him. Make Jesus so real that we can sense him walking up and down these aisles that we feel the breeze of the Holy Spirit as he passes by us and we feel him tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, you, this is for you. 
Lord, we build a throne for you with our praise this morning, for you are enthroned upon the praises of your people. And so we join together in the chorus of the redeemed. We exalt you, we praise you, and we worship you, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, before you're seated, turn to somebody and just tell them, it is going to be a really bad day for the devil. Go ahead. Just let them know. Bad day. Good day for God. <laughs> it's a great day for God and a bad day for the devil. This message is really simple. You will have absolutely no problem figuring out the outline this morning. It's about two voices and two truths. Say that with me. Two voices and two truths. The first of the two voices that we need to hear is the Apostle John, the one who wrote this book. See, the book of Revelation is not only the last book in the Bible, but it was the last book written. And how do we know that? Well, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this book because of the mysterious symbols, the word pictures, and all of this. But if you think about it, if you had lived in A.D. 98, which is about the time that they think this, this book was written, if you'd lived in that time and you were John, and God were trying to tell you, show you things in the 21st century, and instead of talking about Apache or Cobra helicopters with missiles, you might think of it as locusts, that thunder loud, loud in the skies and had multiple wings and, and stingers in their tails. That's the way you might describe something like that. And so God speaks to John in the language of his day so he could communicate to us in that picture language what he saw in his vision. But the revelation of John is a revelation that is not about the Antichrist, not primarily. It's the revelation of the Christ. And so John, he writes this book when he is now an old man. But think about this. He's, he was the only one of the 12, we think, who survived the martyrdom of the, and the fate of the other uh, uh, 12 apostles. And so he's living at an old age on the Isle of Patmos. He was one of the younger disciples back in the day when Jesus was walking with them. He and his two brothers became part of the 12. And John was the disciple who seemed to have more of a sensitive spirit, tender. And he loved Jesus, very committed to him right up to the very end. And so John was there to hear all the things that Jesus said and did. He he was there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James. He was there at the Last Supper. He was the only one that followed Jesus all the way into the court of the temple after his arrest when others had fled or denied Jesus. It was John that stood at the foot of the cross watching him bleed and die. And some of the very last words that were given from the cross by Jesus were instructions to John to take care of his aged mother Mary. Then on Resurrection Sunday, when the women found the tomb empty and came back to tell the disciples, it was John, the younger, who outrun, outran everybody else 
got to the tomb first, and the Bible says when he saw the grave clothes lying the way they looked, like, like in the shape of a human body, like a cocoon, the slightly flattened when the body has come out of it. The Bible says John saw that and he believed. In fact, he may have been the very first New Testament resurrection believer in your Bible. And so John was there to witness the resurrected Christ in his glorified body. He was there on the Mount of Ascension when Christ descended into the clouds before 500 witnesses. And then on the day of Pentecost, it was John with the 119 others who saw the Holy Spirit come down and they all spoke with other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave utterance. And so John emerged from these experiences with, to become a great apostle, the one with whom God would entrust this revelation. And in the earlier days of his ministry, he was one of the four gospel writers. And the power of those gospels has now affected the entire Roman Empire. So powerful was it that now it's a threat to Rome and to Roman emperors and leaders and kings who said things like, those who have turned the world upside down have now come here also. And they're terrified of Christianity and a man that they, they said had died. But as the gospel increased throughout the Roman Empire, so did the persecution of believers. And this became very personal to John. Personal because the first one to die was John's own brother, James. And as the years roll on, one by one, he hears the reports of another and another until finally the reports have now reached his ears that Nero has declared war on Christianity. And he's hearing the report of, of, of Christians now dying by the thousands at the hands of gladiators being torn apart by lions and, and sawn asunder and pierced through with arrows and spears. And it was happening for the whole world to see in foreign lands and in coliseums and masses at the hands of those who were the enemies of Jesus Christ, the enemies of his message, the enemies of the cross. You know what amazes me today is that after all these centuries, millennia have gone by, it is incredible to think that we would still see this happening in the church today by the Christ-haters like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And even communism has risen again, launching new levels of persecution against Christians and churches all across China and across Russia. Churches being destroyed, Christians being locked up again because they dared declare a message outside of the walls of a church. And they're saying now that there's some 200 million believers who live under persecution today and some estimate as many as 100,000 may die for their faith this year. But there on Patmos, John is now an aged man. He's poised at the end of the first century. And as the century comes to the close, another despot rises to the throne of the Roman Empire. His name is Domitian. Oh, there's other names that he goes by in history. You'll find him in your history books. He was Titus Flavius Domitian, Caesar Domitianus Augustus, all the same guy, but arose by any other name, let me tell you. 
the fall of A.D. 96, Domitian had a revelation too. He discovered that he was God. And he proclaimed himself to be God of all Rome. And anyone who was to hear his name or anyone who was to see him was to fall down and declare, our Lord and our God. How many know that's going to come into conflict with every believer who believes that there's only one Lord and one God and that that's Jesus Christ? And so the persecution begins to rise and Satan knowing that this is deliberately to terrorize every true believer. And so Christians were persecuted throughout the entire Roman Empire. And John, who is now an old man, somewhere between 85 and 90 years old, somehow he's managed to escape martyrdom but merits a fate that is almost as bad because he is now banished to the Isle of Patmos and a prisoner of the Roman Empire. Patmos was a desolate place, hardly more than a piece of rock in the Aegean Sea. And from that abandoned rock, which had become a prison camp for the banished prisoners of Rome, on the Lord's day, the Bible says, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's. How many know you want to be in the spirit on the Lord's day? No matter where you are, the spirit of God can penetrate and come in and do a mighty work. And he hears the voice, the great apostle John, as he recites the history of what happened to him in this life. His voice is the voice that speaks to us, but he heard a voice and hears the second voice. It was on the Lord's day. John heard a voice, and out of the spiritual darkness of a place that seemed to be a God-forsaken island over the curses of ungodly men and the screeching of jackals, he hears a voice that captures his attention and brings his soul to attention. And the voice says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, can you just stop and think for a minute? Can you imagine the old man, John? He's been on this island for who knows how long. He's up in his 90s now. Somehow survived martyrdom, but he's a prisoner of Rome. And he hears this voice. He hasn't heard it in 65 years. And all of a sudden, his spirit is just comes to attention. And it's the voice of Jesus. And it's like the sound of a trumpet that just crashes through the, the darkness of that place. And Jesus stands there in his glorified, resurrected body, and time has, has just amplified the glory that he saw once in his resurrected body. And an artist tried to capture it in a painting, but his hair, white like wool, which speaks of the eternal wisdom of the ages. His face shines like the sun, countenance that is free of any darkness. His eyes are as a flame of fire. He sees everything. You can't hide anything from him. He has a sharp two-edged sword that comes from his mouth, which speaks of the powerful word of God. And he wears this high priestly robe, and it, his feet are as brass, which speaks of the authority to judge the earth. And when John sees him, he falls down at his feet and overwhelmed by the power of God. And Jesus tenderly picks John up, and he says, John, it's me. 
Yes, I'm the one who was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. And John, I have some keys. I have the keys of heaven and hell and death. I have the keys, John, and I paid a dear price for these keys. And now, John, I want you to write down these things. I want you to write down the things that you see, the things for the church now that are presently in your time, and that's chapters 2 and 3. And then he says, I want you to write the things that will be after this. That's our time. And in chapter 4, Jesus raptures the old man right up into heaven, takes him out of his earthly tent, takes him right into the presence of God Almighty. He says, come up here. I want to show you some things. And there John sees God the Father seated on the throne, and he's enveloped in this incredible light around the throne. And it's a rainbow. And a rainbow speaks of the promises of God. How many know God never forsakes his promises to us? They are ever before him, that rainbow. And then his throne is surrounded by 24 elders, which speaks of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, and it speaks of the the new order of the 12 apostles in the New Testament. It's, It's the people of all time represented before God. And what are they doing? They're worshiping. Incessantly, they're worshiping. And then there are these four, I don't know how to explain it, because these marvelous whirling creatures that seem to symbolize all creation from the four corners of the earth, and, and they're worshiping constantly day and night and giving honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. Church, it is this scene that brings us to the text that we just read in chapter 5. And you may be saying to yourself, somebody may be saying to themselves, you know, wow, this, this revelation stuff is just way too complex. It's just too complicated. Man, I mean, and some of this stuff is weird. And all. Listen, every vision that you see in the book of Revelation has a simple truth behind it. And I'm going to share with you simple truths this morning. There's not a person in this room that this is going to go over your head. No, no, no. Every vision is to tell us something that reflects back to central truths. And there are two of them. Are you ready for the truths? Number one, he notices something that he hadn't seen the first time. He says in verse one, I saw on the right hand of God the Father who sat upon the throne, a book written inside and on the back. The Greek for the book, the word book is, it's a scroll that you unwind with seals. It's sealed with seven seals. It's progressive. You have to open one to go to the next. Then you have to open that one to go to the next to unwind it. And it's written all over front and back. There's no room for anything else. And as we see this scroll, this leads up to the first central truth about this vision. Very simple, very clear. Two simple truths that you arrive at by the time you get to chapter 5. Number one, there is no one like Jesus. Come on, say that with me. There is no one like Jesus. It's pretty simple, isn't it? How many know it's absolutely true? And look at the way he, the way he teaches us this. Because in verse 2, a mighty angel comes out and asks the question, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? 
And the next verse, verse 3, says something that you can read. You can read it in a couple of seconds, but how many know it took a lot longer than a couple of seconds to demonstrate to John than it did to tell it? For it says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look inside of it. There was no one there who could do it. Now stop and think. The mighty archangels, Gabriel, the announcing angel. How many know Michael, the powerful, warring archangel? They're not worthy to open the book. Cherubim, seraphim. You know how powerful angels are. One angel, not with a capital A, but a small a, took on 50,000 of the enemies of God's people and in one night slew over 50,000 of them that were going to try to take out all of Israel. One angel. I mean, these are bad dudes. <laughs> Steven Spielberg, eat your heart out. J.R.R. Tolkien, eat your heart. You never even thought of this. But they can't touch the scroll. They can't even look at it. I mean, the wonderful angelic beings that Isaiah saw or Ezekiel, the, these beings of incredible light with these winged creatures with Shekinah glory all over them and, and, and appearing in their regal majesty, representing God, but they couldn't touch the book. And all of the great saints... And the patriarchs that were there, none of the mighty men and women of God of days past, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Jeremiah, Daniel, none of them, they can't touch the book. Even the New Testament saints now that have gone on by this time, though their blood was spilled as martyrs and they're, they're honored, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, all of them, they couldn't touch the book. None of the great leaders of the earth that commanded nations and empires. No, no, none of the emperors, none of the kings, none of the czars or potentates, none of them, they couldn't touch the book. None of the great leaders. And listen, and I mean this respectfully, but even Mary, the holy mother of God, the mother of Jesus, she could not touch that scroll. The leaders of world religions could not touch that scroll. Buddha, Muhammad, whatever, Confucius, Dalai Lama, they're not worthy to touch that scroll. And John realizes the utter bankruptcy of creation, great and small, and he realizes his own unworthiness, and he begins to weep. Now let me tell you why no one was worthy to open that scroll. You see, the only one who is worthy to open it is the one, the only one, who is able to accomplish the contents of that scroll. The one who can bring it to pass. And so John weeps because he weeps bitter tears because it's the book of man's inheritance. It's the book of man's deliverance. It's the book of our salvation. It's the book of all of the promises of God. And no one is worthy. But then, <laughs> one of the 24 elders comes to him. 
and says, John, stop crying and open your eyes. There is one, only one, who can open that book. We call him the lion of the tribe of Judah around here. John, there's only one that is worthy to take that scroll and open its seals because, listen, there's no one like him. Church, there is no one like Jesus. Jesus is not just a way. He is the way. He's not just a Savior. He is the Savior. The way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by him. See, we live in an age of secular humanism and relativism and rationalism where man's salvation depends on man and where there are no absolutes and where the, where the instructor, the prof, will sit on the corner of his desk for some of you that are getting ready to go back to universities sit on the corner of his desk and stroke his goatee and mock your God and ask you, why on earth would you think Jesus is the only way? There are many religious leaders. Well, I am here to announce there is an absolute. There is a way, which is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no one like him. Now, the world says, don't get hung up on just Jesus. Why can't you just be a little more tolerant? Why can't you be open-minded? You know, don't get this narrow fixation on Jesus. You know what? When I'm coming into Minneapolis Airport on a foggy, dreary night with about a 200-foot overcast ceiling above, and I've got a pilot in the front of that airplane who's guiding us in, I better not be with the pilot who says, you know, it really doesn't matter where you land. Walmart, Walmart parking lot, runway, taxiway, expressway, what's the difference? Oh, no, no, no. You'd better be with a pilot that's guiding that plane in, that breaks out at 200 feet, sees the approach lights to 30 left, and brings that plane down for a landing. <laughs> Open minded? Some people are so open-minded, their brains fall out. <laughs> and we're surrounded by people in this culture and by voices that are constantly telling us to be open-minded. Hey, anybody can bring that plane in. Any place is good enough to land. There are many runways that lead to heaven, and people are crashing every day and going into eternity without God. Please hear it this morning. Beyond the veil of time, we'll know more than ever there is no one like Jesus. There's no one like him. You know what? Church, it is time for Christians and for the church to get its voice back and declare there is one way his name is Jesus. There is one gospel. It is the good news for everyone who believes as far as many as are afar off, as many as uh, accept his name and accept the conditions. Jesus is the only way, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And... Uh, 
Let me tell you why Jesus is the only way. And I'm going to wrap it up. John turns. He sees the one between the throne and the elders. And if John had known what he was about to look at, I think he'd have probably done a triple take. Because he would have expected to see Jesus like he saw him at the beginning of the book. His hair white with the celestial glow and his countenance like the sun and eyes blazing fire, all that streaming glory. But in verse 6, instead, he looks and he says, are you ready for this? He says, I saw a lamb standing as if slain. What? Standing as if slain? I mean, it, and, and the word that is used, it must be the greatest understatement in your Bible because the Greek word sfadzo, it literally means with the marks of slaughter upon it. Mortally wounded. The lamb is there, but mortally wounded. You say, wait a minute, why spoil the moment? All of the celestial glory and rainbow colors and, and all the great things that are there. Why blood and gore around this pristine, magnificent throne? And if you were a Jew, you would have understood it. That's the way lambs were offered in sacrifices over thousands of years. They would sacrifice and the blood would be poured out. And they would take that blood and on the Day of Atonement would sprinkle it on the mercy seat that represented the mercy of God through Jesus Christ in the tabernacle. And here is the lamb with this mortal wound, but amazingly, he's alive. The scar is there, but the lamb is alive. Jesus is there, but still with the nail prints, the five bleeding tokens of his love for us in his hands and his feet and his side. And the lamb does what nobody else can do. He takes the scroll. And when he does, that silent pause of he heaven suddenly erupts into praise that echoes through all of heaven, the four living creatures, they're whirling around and suddenly they just fall down before him and they begin to worship each of them having a harp and, and bowls full of incense that fills the atmosphere and it represents the prayers of the saints of all the centuries. And the Bible says they sang a new song. Well, what was the new song that they sang? Listen, somebody asked you why you're so hung up on Jesus why are you saying there's no one like him? What's wrong with Buddha? Or what? Hey, Muhammad was a great man, or Confucius was a man of great wisdom. The answer is in the song that they sang. Look at verse 9. Worthy are you to take the book and to break the seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Did I tell you there is no one like Jesus? No one like Jesus. You know what that song is? That song is a prophetic declaration. It is a song, I mean, back here, we're talking first century, around the year 98 AD, the Holy Spirit is revealing to John through this vision that the gospel is going to be preached to every tribe and every nation, and they're all crying out in prophetic declaration, the redeemed, Jesus, the redeemed are all here, and they're here because of you, Jesus. Syrian Christians that were martyred and had their heads uh, decapitated, they'll be there. Arabic-speaking believers, they're there around the throne. Jewish people who found Yeshua HaMashiach, 
Eastern Indians speaking Bengali or the 2,000 other dialects from India. Africans are there speaking in Afrikaans or Swahili. South Americans there crying out, Jesus is my fuente de paz y amor. Gloria a Dios, gloria a Dios. Every tribe, every race, every nation, every tongue, and they're all crying out, we are here because we accepted the grace that God offered through Jesus Christ, the only Messiah, the only Savior, the only one worthy to break the seals and fulfill the promise. Can I get a witness? There is no one, no one, no one like Jesus. I wrap it up with the second truth. Second truth is just as simple but just as profound as the first one. What was the first one? There is no one like Jesus. Here's the second one. Are you ready? There is nothing. There is nothing that isn't his. <laughs> there is nothing that doesn't belong to him. He is Lord of all. I want you to read in concert with me. Read aloud with me verses 11 and 12. Come on, let's read it together. It'll be up on the screens. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. <laughs> and angels, <laughs> yeah, go ahead, come on. Go ahead. And stop and think about this. Angels start showing up from everywhere. First tens and twenties and then by the hundreds they start showing up and then myriads it says and then finally thousands and thousands of angels and they show up like this giant it's like a giant celestial sphere around the throne of God all of them worshiping and praising and with a loud voice they cry worthy how many of you used to go to secular rock concerts Oh, come on, you, yeah, come on. You can lift your hands, all right. It's okay, you're saved now, right, you know. <laughs> hey, listen, I was at the, I was at the uh, concert that was just in Louisville with, uh, for, kings, for king and country. Hey, let me tell you, it was awesome, really. They, they were fantastic. But when I say it was a blast, do you understand I'm talking about 120 decibels blast? It was loud. But you know what? You haven't even begun to hear loud yet. That's why you are going to need a glorified body in order to handle what's going to happen up there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I don't know how loud an angel is. I do know that in Revelation 10, there's one angel that plants his foot on the land and on the, the other on the sea, and he thunders with a loud voice that just about wakes up the dead. I, I know that's one angel. 
How loud would a million angels be who thunder with a loud voice, thousands and thousands and millions of angels? And you know what they say? He's worthy. He alone is worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory. I mean, that, that virtually sums it all up. He's worthy to receive everything. It all belongs to him. Can we just say it one more time before we close? There is no one like Jesus, and there is nothing that doesn't belong to him. Can we just give a shout of praise up to the Lord right now? Come on, stand to your feet. Come on, give him praise.